Hi everyone, I'm Zoe Booth. I'm the community manager at Quillette and today I'm going to be talking to my boss and mentor and friend, Claire Lehman. She founded Quillette in 2015 and we're going to be talking about a number of issues including feminism and pandering to your audience online and content creation and how you can grow your audience. So here we are in our first Quillette podcast interview. And we're going to be talking about Claire's latest column in The Australian, for which she writes every every week. And her column is about progressive ideologies and their effect on teens and adolescents and their mental health. So Claire, as you said, there's there's been a massive increase in teen suicides in Australia. Um, 13 young people died this year. I'm not sure there's actually an increase in teen suicide, but what we do know is this is there is a massive increase in teen anxiety and depression. And that's not just in Australia, it's all over the world. So uh, there's there's lots of data showing that since 2012, um, rates of anxiety and depression have increased by about 30% to 50% in countries like the UK, the US, even in Scandinavia. So there's something going on and uh, psychologists are trying to work out what it is, what's, what's changed for young people. And the most compelling argument or the most compelling hypothesis is that it, the, the change, the environmental change is social media. But in my article, I also wrote that ideology might be having a role to play as well and um, some fashionable uh, theories and narratives associated with identity politics, to my mind, do not promote uh, good mental health habits. <laughs> and so I got into yeah. a, a little bit of that in the article. Yeah. So which um, which trends in particular do you think um, have the, the worst effect on team mental health? Well, Identity politics promotes the idea that your membership of a group is one of the most, if not the most important aspect of your identity. So in my case, being a woman might be the most important thing about me. And I don't, firstly, I don't think that's a very helpful way to navigate the world. Um, our group identity should be the least interesting thing about us and... The other thing that uh, identity identity politics promotes is this idea that our stories of hardship or victimization are the are very important, and I mean they can be they can be stories of hardship can be very important, particularly for ourselves when we're thinking about how we've overcome hardship. But there's a a general trend where uh, victim status is almost encouraged. Yeah. So it's not the getting over of hardship, it's the hard, being in hardship is valorized. And so that's a problem. If, you, if you're trying to overcome anxiety and depression, you want to move forward from hardship. Uh, and there are various different ways of doing it, but wallowing in mm -hmm. your victim status is not the most effective way to move out of those sort of bad mental states. And so I think that's just a bad habit to promote in young people mm -hmm. who are suffering from mental health problems. So what do you think are some of the solutions 
Um, well, I say to people, look, if you've been, if you've been a victim of a crime or a victim of some kind of harsh circumstance, um, you know, those experiences are important and we learn a lot from them, but they don't change who you are and they don't, um, shape you and, uh, and, and I think particularly for young women, if they've been through a crisis or, or a particularly bad experience, this notion that they are traumatized for life, I think is unhelpful. Um, just personal story. I was a victim of a crime when I was 19, 20. It was actually, actually happened on my 20th birthday. I was assaulted by an ex-boyfriend and, uh, you know, it was traumatic and, and I had, uh, post-traumatic anxiety, but it, it, I was not a traumatized person. And I, and I rejected this notion that I was a victim because of that one experience. And although technically, yes, I was a victim, I was a victim of a crime and I had to be a witness in a court case and I received victims of crime compensation, I never internalized the identity of being a victim. And I think that rejection of a victim identity has served me well. And I, I worry when I see people, uh, sort of internalize this notion that they are traumatized or they are victim, they are victims that it doesn't, it, 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 it doesn't work over the long term. You have, you always have to move on from that. Otherwise you'll feel sorry for yourself. You will think that, um, you cannot do the things that other people can do because you're somehow damaged. And I, I just think it's not a constructive way to go through life. I agree. And I know that when I was in that um, ideology, I suppose, I wallowed in my perceived suffering. Yeah. Um, and I think it was stoicism, learning about stoicism, actually, um, and coming across, you know, I think is such as Jordan Peterson, for example, he, um, he helped me to just, you know, take control of my life and mm. realize there was, there's another way of, um, yeah, handling these, these stresses, but obviously online, you know, when you're on social media, um, you not only are you spending a lot of time on there, um, you know, interacting, having shallow interactions with people you might not know. But you can also gain a lot of power by sharing your victimhood status, um, and I think you would agree that that's um, yeah unhelpful, counterproductive. It might work in the short term. Mm. So there's a really good book uh, by two sociologists called "The Rise of Victimhood Culture" uh, by Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning, and. Um, in this book, they argue a new culture emerged on uh, American university campuses, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or something, in the 2010s. And they argued that people were, give, were starting to be given moral status or increased status because of their victim status. So increased moral, you know, it's like you're a, a more important person, you're a better person if you're a victim yes. or you've been a victim. And uh, so this, they argued, was 
one of the drivers behind things like cancel culture, you know, the deplatforming of speakers and this and this rise of fragility. Like I can't go and listen to a conservative speaker because I might be traumatized by their words. This kind of this whole new culture. And it's a, it's a very compelling book and they marshal a lot of evidence in support of their theory and uh and I think it's true. I think what they've identified is true and and it's I feel like my generation so I'm an older elder millennial. I feel like I came through and I grew up just before a lot of these trends started happening and I grew up in a time when victimhood wasn't celebrated nearly as much as it is today and the the lessons of stoicism were sort of implicit like we I do remember being taught as a child that sticks and stones may break your bone uh, sticks and stones will break your bones but words will ne- never hurt yeah. like we were told that and <laughs> um yeah I I think that I mean those those lessons they might seem harsh or insensitive but they do uh they they are helpful um particularly when you're trying to move on from a difficult experience and you know life is not all about getting attention for being a victim uh we have to do other things like adult having managing our adult responsibilities such as going to work raising children um, managing relationships with other people. I mean, we can't just be, uh, perpetual victims. Exactly. We have to be able to function and to be able to do that, having, having strategies for coping with stress is just essential. So do you think that there's a gender difference here that maybe women are more susceptible to this ideology, um, victimhood yeah it's it's very tempting i think for women young women in particular to focus on difficult experiences and let those ex- experiences define um you and i mean women we do have difficult experiences um you know, just just being a woman means that we have more reproductive biological complications than men do. I mean, I'm a mother. I've been through childbirth. I mean, it is a difficult thing uh, <laughs> to uh-huh. go through. And so, you know, just the, the very nature of being a woman means that we have a more precarious existence. But it also means that we kind of have to be tough uh-huh. or tougher in in a certain in one sense, like if we want to succeed. Um, and I just think we've, we've sort of, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's not really that new. So this, this trend of women sort of identifying with, um, this idea that they're oppressed or they're victims. I mean, in many ways, it's just a reincarnation of a Victorian um, conception of womanhood, which is that we are fragile flowers. We need protection from men. We need protection from the, um, rough and tumble of the world. I mean, that's, that notion of womanhood is um, far more, um, historically stand, you know, the stand, the standard historically than 
the the notion that we are equal with men and we can um, live our own lives on our own terms. I actually prefer that notion of womanhood, that we are self-determining individuals. But the fact that we're sort of going back to this old-fashioned conception. Yeah, it's ironic, but it's not entirely surprising to me. (laughs) I guess they've just replaced... um we the Victorian image of we need protection from men and by men to we need to dismantle the systems of you know patriarchy and I think it's I think it's power. very similar I think it's we need protect so in in Victorian era it's we needed protection by men from men and now it's we need protection from the state from men or yeah. from the world uh, so instead of the patriarchy, the protector is still this is still an authority figure, but it's the state, it's the government. Yeah. Um. So we need protection from nasty words on the internet, mm-hmm. or we need protection from, uh, you know, uncom awkward sexual encounters yeah. at university. Yeah. But it's strange, isn't it? Because it's sort of like. Like the narrative at the moment is we're strong, independent women. We can do whatever the hell we want to. Um, we can be completely autonomous. We don't even need to have, you know, babies or families. We can just, you know, be boss bitches essentially. Um, but at the same time that we're fragile and perpetual victims of oppression. So, I, yeah, when I started to realize that that didn't really make sense, I was like, yeah, it made me question liberal feminism. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of contradictions in uh, modern day feminism. And, you know, I think it, it, all of us as women have to sort of come to our own interpretation and take what we need and reject what we don't. Yeah. And so for me, uh, I certainly internalize a lot of the messages from liberal feminism on a psychological level, uh, but on the physical level, I'm more ready to acknowledge that, yes, well, I am weaker yeah. than the average male, <laughs> and I have no problem with yeah. that. Um, so I, I, I sort of... I mean, I'm not, I don't, I definitely consider myself a feminist, but I'm also a a big reader of um, psychology and and evolutionary psychology is part of that. And so acknowledging that there are not just physical sex differences, but psychological sex differences Mm -hmm. as well. And that doesn't mean that, um, that doesn't mean that our behavior is determined Mm -hmm. simply because we have innate differences or we're we're born pre-wired but it does mean that it does help make sense of some of the patterns of behavior that we see (laughs) in the world and i know you're you're a big fan of camille palia yeah as am i yeah Uh, when did you first come across her work and how would you for people who might not know about camille's yeah camille uh, how would you describe her work so i first discovered Palia's work when I was in uh, undergraduate uh, university, doing my arts degree at Adelaide University. Uh And so I was studying arts and my courses 
were heavily influenced by postmodern theory, mm-hmm. which I found tedious. And uh, I don't know how I came across her. I think maybe I was searching for criticisms mm-hmm. of Michael Foucault online, and I found an essay that she had written, which was very critical of Foucault, and it was also very funny mm-hmm. and biting. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this woman is amazing. And so I looked up her books at my university library and I found that my university, to their credit, had all of her books. Amazing. And so I would spend time, rather than study my course materials, I would spend time in the library reading her books. Mm -hmm. So I read Vamps and Tramps and um, Sexual Persona and there's another collection of essays um, that, yeah, so she's she's an essayist, I think, Mm. more than a... Uh, book author, but that's yeah. fine. I mean, they're, they're inca- her essays are perfectly encapsulated and um, they stand the test of time. I mean, reading them now, going back and reading them now is just as um, exciting and stimulating as it was for me in the early 2000s. And she wrote the essays in the 1990s, so they're quite old now. Yeah. And um, and I think they will be read 50, 100 years from now. Mm. Are there any other writers um, writing about these topics, you know, maybe challenging mainstream feminism, any other authors that you've got a lot from? Um, Well, I'm more a reader of scientific texts. So, um, So empirical psychologists don't write in a polemical way challenging uh, feminist orthodoxy. However, um, they will, I mean, just reading papers by David Bath or Roy Baumeister, who's um, developed a theory of sexual economics, um, or even Steven Pinker, you know, reading the blank slate. It's not that these texts uh, take on feminism uh directly mm-hmm. but indirectly they challenge some of the assumptions that uh orthodox feminism sort of has rested on and i don't mean the political or moral um uh, proposition that men and women are morally equal mm-hmm. i 100 percent agree with that mm-hmm. and uh i'm an equal opportunity feminist. I mean, I have a career and run my own business and, you know, just a couple of generations ago, I wouldn't be able to have Uh, any of those things. uh So I'm not naive about how much I've benefited from feminism as a political movement. However, in in our lifetime, there's been a lot of uh, silly notions Uh around men and women not having any psychological sex differences, our brains being absolutely identical, and the only differences that exist are because of social constructionism. And that has sort of morphed into this absurd ideology, which we call gender ideology, which um, takes on the claim that we are the same physically and that it's not an unfair advantage for a biological male to compete in female yeah, sports. Yeah. So what I object to is not feminism, it's the this uh, assumption that biology doesn't exist. Uh-huh. So if you have a version of feminism that ha- takes on all of the political and moral um, messages that 
we are equal, but it also acknowledges at the same time that we there are biological differences. I mean, we completely support that and do. But it's this it's this sort of anti-scientific notion that sex differences can't exist mm-hmm. because if they do, it means that we are not equal. I don't accept that. Yeah. And it's interesting that feminism sort of branched or split into, you know, the radical feminists who are really taking a stand against this gender ideology and then the more like mainstream feminists who are just sort of going along with it. Um, but do you think that radical feminism has, or the rad femmes have something to answer for, like that they're sort of... They set the, yeah. set the stage for yeah. for uh, gender the ideology. Stand. Yeah. It's an interesting question and it's possible. Um, I think that, but at the same time, so, I mean, radical feminism is a a a bit of a strange and obscure ideology and they they took on this Marxist notion that uh, all women are oppressed by all men and that gender is like a class. And I don't know if radical feminism was ever that popular. Mm. But, and I'm not sure if the people who really pushed for the idea that there are no psychological sex differences, I don't know if they would describe themselves as radical feminists. Um, What about Jermaine Greer? Like, I actually didn't read The Female Eunuch. I listened to it. Um, and I tend to not pay as much attention when I listen to an audiobook. But um, I do remember a chapter of that book in which she seemed to be arguing that, um, like, the science on brain differences between men and women were always clouded by bias. bias. And I do know a lot of feminists, especially, like, older feminists who do believe that. And I'm sure there's some truth to it that, you know, possibly there was some bias. Yeah. So, yeah, that's right. So there is the the, the idea that gender, what we see as gendered behavior, is entirely socially constructed and not linked to biology. I, yeah, I, I, I think that has now resulted in this idea that you can just put on a dress and change your pronouns and suddenly you're a woman. So it's not feminism, it's the it's radical social constructionism. Yeah. It's that ideology. And that's the ideology that turned me off mainstream feminism mm. to begin with. It's that it's that it's the assumption that our behavior is is a product of socialization and has very little input from biology. That is what uh, pushed sort of feminism off the rails a little bit and has now resulted in this sort of um, crazy ideology where we cannot, we we have to say that trans women are women and we can't, we can't point out that the experience of being a woman is just fundamentally different on a biological level. And even aside from psychological experiences, I mean, we just have different biologies. For sure. Um, and so, but I, to be honest, I think that some of the feminists and some of the scholars and theorists who were radical cons- social constructionists may 
may have changed their minds. Um, I mean, I don't know, but I would be surprised if they haven't in 2023, I would be surprised if they haven't uh, updated their positions. I mean, Germaine Greer has probably updated her position. And so, I mean, that's okay. Like people are allowed to change their mind and we can't, I don't think we can hold it against them that, okay, so you were wrong. Now we've got this crazy activist movement, therefore, you know, um, like they could, there's no way they could have predicted this would be the outcome. Yeah. And that sort of leads me into another topic, um, about how people can be fans of one ideology or one thinker, for example. I'm thinking about, for example, Sam Harris, right? Mm. So Sam Harris um, had and still has a very large following um, until, you know, uh, COVID came about and Trump and um, lots of people, lots of his followers took issue with his, um, you know, rejection of Trump and his uh, politics. And then just because of that one difference of opinion, many of his followers or fans, or not many, but a very vocal minority perhaps, fled and made it very public that they were just fleeing. Um, So do you think that that's become more prevalent in this day and age, that if you don't agree with with a thinker on one topic... Mm. you just give up on them or do you think that that's just human nature and we've always been like that yeah I mean that's a good question and I to be honest I've probably uh changed my mind on certain individuals Uh and certain thinkers because of their views on maybe Ukraine Uh or vaccination Uh I mean to me if a person is siding with Putin Uh uh Or making excuses for a, you know, a a tyrant to invade a country, um, unilaterally. I mean, that makes me question their judgment on other issues. Uh And similarly with, um, if, if, if someone is, um, sowing doubt and distrust of vaccination, that Uh makes me question their, uh, scientific competence. Yeah. And so I I have um, changed my mind on certain uh-huh. thinkers and individuals as well, uh-huh. and maybe I shouldn't have. Maybe, uh, maybe that's tribal uh-huh. of me. Uh-huh. I think though, we can acknowledge when people have expertise in one area, but maybe they don't have expertise in other areas, and and be more forgiving in those certain contexts. Um, when it comes to Sam Harris, I think it's unf- I think the way he's been treated is has been unfair but the reality is that the online world is very tribal audiences uh demand a level of loyalty to certain tribal um affiliate uh, signifiers and um if you don't demonstrate your tribal loyalty you can be ostracized quite viciously uh, and there's a certain level of animosity reserved for people who are viewed as traitors, uh, even more than people who have never been seen as part of the in-group. And so, yeah, I, I think he's, the treatment of him has been unfair, but 
I think all credit to him, he's shown a level of integrity that, that I think a lot of public figures haven't shown. And I, you know, even if he expresses himself in a, in a, a way that is, um, liable to get him in trouble, mm-hmm. good for him for being, for being honest yeah. about what he thinks. For having uh, integrity and yeah. a backbone. I mean, there's so, there's so many performance artists. Yes. There are so many people who uh, pander to their mm-hmm. audience, mm-hmm. who uh, take cues from their audience and then just spoon feed their audience what they think they want to hear. And and that's the definition of being a mm. hack. Do you think they're conscious of what they're doing or they're just so scared that they sort of do it subconsciously or unconsciously? Uh, well, I think there's probably a spectrum. Mm. So I think some people are genuine performance mm. artists and they probably don't have a a, a single principle mm. in their bodies <laughs> and have never had a, a, a set of principles yep. and are not particularly intellectual either. Mm-hmm. So a person can be intelligent without being intellectual. And, and, and some of these performance artists are very smart. Mm. They're very articulate, uh, but they serve a purpose, and that is to um, provide an audience with confirmation bias yep. and uh, entertainment, infotainment. And they do their job very well, and they're re- rewarded handsomely for it. But someone like Sam Harris is not an infotainment provider. Mm. He is actually a thinker and, um, you know, it's difficult in this day and age. You have to be very thick skinned in this day and age to, uh, not give your audience exactly what they want all the time, but he's, he's managed Mm. that and all credit to him. Have you ever been tempted to keep your mouth shut on something that, you know, your audience wouldn't like, or, um, have you ever given into that and regretted it or yeah. What's your experience with that? Um, I would say that I have, uh, probably not kept my mouth shut, um, enough, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, particularly on social media. So on Twitter Mm -hmm. and I regret some of the choices I've made, not because I was dishonest, but I would be, I was probably impulsive and lacked the grace that I think uh, mature adults should exhibit. Mm-hmm. So in in just um, shooting down people who are being critical or or replying to trolls in a nasty way or even, you know, the, one of the dangers or pitfalls of Twitter is that you can let, um, it's a, trolling is not the only danger. You can let uh, adulation sort of go to your head and you can think that having a couple hundred thousand followers is somehow important and has when it's not important at all and has no bearing on the real world and and I I would actually say that's the biggest risk um the biggest risk of social media is thinking that a following on social media actually means something doesn't mean much doesn't mean you're going to earn money it, does, it doesn't translate necessarily into money. It doesn't translate into any kind of loyal fan base because people will turn on you within a second if, you know, they feel that you're some kind of traitor to their cause. Um, if anything, it's a distraction 
from what is really going to change your life, which is uh, earning a steady income as a content creator, um, developing loyal supporters who support you through uh, financial um, pledges. <laughs> All of that can be done, is better done outside of social media. And social media actually just becomes massive distraction and waste of time, in my experience. Wow. Okay. So what what tips would you have for content creators today, um, whether they be people who are starting their own, you know, Substacks or other um, platforms or YouTubers, maybe talking about intellectual stuff that we like to talk about or podcasters? Yeah. Um, do you have any tips for them? Oh, definitely. So uh, if you're starting a your own publication, you want to publish a lot. So publishing, I mean, it depends if you're going to be on your own or with a group of friends. Um, either way, you want to have regular content coming out. So on Quillette, we have articles being published every day. So that keeps people coming back. Um Social media can be useful for distribution, but it can also be a massive time waster. And it, it's good to be able to recognize when you're wasting time and it's not being productive. Um, I think in this era, uh, not being too, being uh, unpredictable is is a generally a positive. So not being coming up with some kind of original insights or analysis that don't conform to a standard left-wing or right-wing kind of um, perspective is always going to attract an audience because people are hungry for interesting, novel, original ideas. And um, and then once you get a following, uh, the, the most important following is an email subscriber list. Uh. So the, the people who subscribe to your email list are worth t 10 times as more to you as a Twitter follower. And that is because if you have people subscribing to your email list, they are likely to give you money and they're also likely to read your content rather than just the the headline of an article. They're, li they're more likely to actually read what you write rather than uh, retweet something simply because the headline caught their eye or because, um, you know, they they saw you, you they saw your face on Twitter and thought it was a pretty face or whatever and so they followed you because of it. Um, yeah, Not so speaking I, from experience here. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, it's just a much more uh, substantial um, indicator of support. Yeah. So Colette's got about, uh, coming up to about 100,000 email yeah. subscribers. And to me, those, my, our email subscribers are, they're the backbone of our <laughs> business. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we want to give them, we want to give those email subscribers a good product and that's what occupies my time. And I'm, I'm much happier now that I'm focusing more on those 100,000 email subscribers rather than worrying about the couple of hundred thousand Twitter followers that I had, uh, who, you know, half of them would have been, may have been hate following uh, me anyway, uh -huh. you know, like it's just such a waste of time. Yeah. Hmm. I agree. Like what tips do you have for building your email list? 
Well, I mean, there are there are the standard ways just to um, have a really easy. I mean, today it's really easy because you can have you have Substack and you have Ghost and all of the, that functionality is built mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. When I started Quillette, we didn't have that functionality. I had to I had a WordPress website and I had to. Um, uh, implement forms for people to sign up with. It wasn't it wasn't automatic like it is now. So today we have software that and makes it really easy for people to start publications, mm-hmm. start newsletters, uh, start a career as a content creator, and it's great. Uh, and the payment um, method is built in as well, which is fantastic. And and that wasn't around when I started. Yeah. So. I think just using one of the platforms like Substack or Ghost is the way to go. Mm-hmm. And putting up, um, as we did at Quillette, we put up a, it's not a paywall. It actually, sometimes it looked like a paywall. We tried to make it clear that it wasn't. But yeah, putting up some sort of a, a barrier yeah. so that people had to yeah. give their email, which, you know, some people complain about and they, they say it's unfair and they've subscribed to enough mailing list and I get it my inbox is a bit of a mess as well but you know we do pay our authors yeah. and that we have staff and okay well it's been great talking um yeah and... thanks for having me Zoe <laughs> my pleasure let's yeah. do it again soon yeah great thank you